Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today, we're speaking with Chris Tellefson, ACE, about editing The Many Saints of Newark, A Sopranos Story. Chris and I have spoken before about his editing on A Quiet Place and Assassin's Creed. He also worked on Joy, which was a previous Art of the Cut interview. Chris was nominated for two Ace Eddies in 2000 alone, analyzed this and Man on the Moon. He was nominated for an Ace Eddie and an Oscar for Moneyball, another Ace Eddie nomination for Joy, and won an HPA award for A Quiet Place. In addition, he cut True Story, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints, Capote, and The Village, among others. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. You were not on that original team, correct? Did you go back and watch The Sopranos? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Before I before I started, I watched the whole thing again. What are some of your muses? Not necessarily editing, but when you just want to be inspired, what are some of the artistic things that you feel help give you a creative push? Well, I like to read. I just reread a book by Vladimir Nabokov called Laughter in the Dark. My background is I went to art school, and that's where my work came from and basically editing became in just doing these small films that I started doing and I mostly shot from television we worked things so it was really very much about found footage and I just loved the process so it's really it's sort of my medium I was never necessarily expected that I'd be able to make it into a real profession but it it worked out you know because I very aggressively pursued it and things worked out I just, I just love the process, you know, I really love the process. Like right now I'm deep in dailies, I'm just two weeks in, it's really fun, you know, I'm just enjoying it. It's interesting because there are different editors that I've talked to that their favorite part is dailies and there's other ones that say, I hate the dailies part, I like the process after the dailies. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? I, I don't have a favorite. What I like is that there's so many different phases. The dailies you're just sort of swimming in something like trying to like, oh, oh like this is like both a combination of performance and placement then this shot would be a great starter. This would be, sometimes they're very specific, you know, sometimes things are very deliberately done and that's, you know, that's, you know, you're following something deliberate and then sometimes you're discovering things and ways to shape and form. One of my notes that I wanted to talk about was that confirmation scene that you mentioned that's early on. I don't know how it was scripted, but I loved that it wasn't wall-to-wall dialogue like it could have been, that you opened it up, you gave moments of color and pace that, let the dialogue breathe and broke it up a little bit. Can you talk about that process? You just wanted it to be very atmospheric. You wanted to feel like you were you were introducing the characters not too like here's here, here's here, here's here, but in kind of a flowy way, you know, that is enjoyable to experience. You know, and, and it had the wonderful live music, the, the accordion and the guitar with playing like these traditional Italian pieces that were fun. And so using that to to flow it. And there was like a whole like that that just that very, very quick thing of the woman saying Apollonia was the patron saint of dentists. There was a whole thing of that. She opened the thing and it was, like, it was just too much, but it was enough to just give it some color. Yeah. Another thing that I noticed, there were a bunch of scenes where it started with dialogue, but you were not on the dialogue person. You would start on a little moment of detail. Well, the introduction of Satriali's of the pork store, it was very specifically 
meant to be that they were listening to WNEW AM from that time, from the 60s, which was like the make-believe ballroom. And they played a lot of Sinatra and William B. Williams was the announcer. And you hear him talking about the chairman of the board and then Sinatra comes on kind of thing. So it just wanted to get the color and the pace of the thing. And then, and then just to see the fact that this was a place of business, even though the bosses are just eating and shooting the shit up there, but there's there's guys on the phone, there's money being exchanged, you know, just to get that color. What is your approach? When you sit down with dailies and you've got a scene that you know that, you've, that the dailies are in your bin, what do you do? I watch them down very carefully. I look at the script notes, especially on, on what I'm working on right now. The script supervisor is really great at making sure she gets whatever the director is saying that he's picking out or, or feeling like, and which is great. So I, those, those are things that I definitely want to get a sense of the intention, of course, but I'm also looking, just looking and, and vetting it for detail and of course for performance, what I, what I feel, what I'm responding to, trying to like think in my head at first watching each, each of the setups and the AB cameras or whatever, where do I wanna be when I'm here and there? And then, then facing it and starting to pull out selects and sort of start feeling out. It's the process of constructing and figuring constructing and figuring and trying to get it to sing, to feel, to feel right and to get the intention across. For, for those that might not know your background, one of the things we talked about in a previous interview was you assisted for Thelma. I was an apprentice on The Color of Money and that was in 1986 and Marty was starting to really collect that time. And so the, the films that he was buying were coming through and, I, and he asked me to work on his archive. So I worked on his archive for about six months, but I knew that wasn't going to go anywhere. Marty and Thelma are great, but they, they see you just as you are then. And there's no movement in that world, to be honest with you. Just after that, I, I edited a short film, and that eventually got me Metropolitan. When you're looking at other editors' work for awards, for the Ace Eddies, or for Oscars, or Emmys, or whatever else you're able to get screeners for and vote for, what draws your attention? What, what gets your vote? What gets my vote is what the film does for me, how I am affected by it. I don't look at it as like saying, oh, this particular thing was so, you know, particularly well, well done, but is it the full whole? I, I look more to the whole than to the small areas. Let's talk a little bit about montages or some of the, like for me, uh, I was thinking about the Burning City montage or the looting montage. It was shot with the, the, that intention of the fact that, you know, it was Harold's view the character Harold's view of what was going on. Interestingly, integrating all of the strife of Newark at that time, we had to kind of find the right balance where it was seen through the lens of the movie. It was interesting when we ended up putting that piece on and then like sort of like abstracting the sound and stuff, it just felt better. It felt as if we were kind of going a little macro with it. And, and that's with Harold. But then when we're with our Sopranos characters, it's all seen through Dickie driving his dead father through through the through the thing and being passed through with a dead body because he's white was very significant. And the whole idea of like these people, they look at that as, as an opportunity to steal and get away with murder. And when you were cutting that together, was that idea of perspective in your forefront of your mind? It was discovered. It was a process. It was a process. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't predetermined per se. You know, they were shot very young. A lot of it was very, very covered and very like 
it, it could have been a lot more, and it was a lot more at some point, especially the bit of the burning city with Harold throws the, um, the Molotov cocktail. There was a lot more to that. It was taking away from the perspective of the movie. It was too, too much. So we had to kind of figure out the right balance so that it felt, you felt it, but you felt it sort of as it was like resonating for the other characters too. And interestingly, when he goes to like the last poets in 1971, he comes out of there like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take over the little lottery, the, the numbers game, which is basically exploiting his own people. <laughs> One of the th other things that I noticed you did a couple of times was pre-lapping music, starting at, at the very end of one scene and having it continue into the next scene. Can you talk to me about doing that? There, there is no score in this movie and there's no composer. It's all music. It's all music that exists. And there's like, a, I mean, it's a massive amount. So yes, it's meant to not only be something that, that's being, or let's say listened to, but it goes above and beyond. And, and that's also a way to tie things together, arc the rhythms of the scenes into one another. Can you talk to me a little bit about that beginning? The You were talking about kind of like a Spoon River anthology idea of the beginning of the movie. How did it start before that was determined? In the original, it started with the scene where um, Harold is is chasing the is chasing Leon, who's in the black saint be a gang member, chasing the gang member, starts banging him up, and then then Dicky comes in. You you get the sense that there's a relationship between Dicky and he, and then then you go to the the soprano family that's African American work, and then there's like a, a Madonna in a garden kind of thing and an American flag. And then Tony throwing a football with his dad and his mother. And that was like, and then Dickie comes and picks him up. And then they go to um, pick up Ray Liotta and Michaela at the, at the ship coming in from Italy. That was, that was how it originally started. And then, then right after that was the dinner scene where you get to know Michaela somewhat. And then, you know, he hears them having sex. And then the next day was the taxi driver who was, who was beaten up by the cops that basically was the instigating incident of the Newark riots. Then we went so far away from that, that it got a bit lost. In the rearrangement, we, we more or less consolidated that story closer to Harold and Queen Azola talking about the numbers game while the little boys do giving her the hair straightening and stuff. And then, and then dovetailing into the Satriales where he gets dressed down by Dickie, and then you see him kill um, Leon in the um, recruiting center, which was, if you'll notice on the continuity, that was scene 53, and now it's like the placement of like scene 12 or something. <laughs> Sometimes you have a sense of chronology that you can't really screw around with, or, or, um, or things happen very consecutively, whereas that wasn't the case with, with this. It was like they didn't have a temporal need to be one after another. Another area where we did a lot of, of movement was after the introduction of Michael to the shootout. There was a lot of a lot of juggling and there were a lot of lifts. That was for keeping the midsection alive. There were two kind of wonderful scenes that had to be sacrificed, which is, you know, another, you know, it's a kill your darlings kind of situation. Whereas there was a wonderful scene with them. Livia wakes from a nightmare thinking that she lost her teeth. And the, the whole family is kind of dealing with her. And then the father's basically like, he's going down to Florida and you can take care of her now. And then like, it was a nice shot of like, like having a nightmare in the foreground and him in the background, which was, it was, it was a terrific scene. It was a really strong scene, but it, it brought down the pace of the middle section. And then there was another really strong scene that was actually, it was, David was never convinced of the scene because he felt it was like during the writing, there was like questions of like, 
oh, there's no reference to Dickie having killed his father. So so he wrote that scene where Johnny and Tony go to where Dickie works. So they come there, but then Johnny's going to buy a pinball or something. I don't know. So he's really, really insulting to, to Tony and kind of puts him down. And then he goes off to one of the assistants to look at stuff. And Tony and Dickie have a little conversation. And Tony's like, oh, God, I hate him. I could kill him. And then he smacks him. <laughs> he said, don't, don't say that. Don't say, you know, and then they literally got into a literal fight and the father had to break them up. It was really good as a scene. It was interesting, but story-wise, it was like to see a certain kind of strife between them and having Johnny break it up just didn't scan in the, in the whole. It took it in a direction that felt disjointed. Is that something that you get as you've put this movie together, you've assembled it, and you're sitting with the director and you're watching the entire thing and you're realizing, oh, that bumps or I'm bored or what's going on when you pull a great scene? Yeah, you're trying to track it, trying to see, oh, is this right? Is this configuration correct? Is this playing? Is this giving us what will, and, and actually the whole aspect of it is, will it feed the ending? Did you guys do screenings? Oh, yes, many, many, many screenings. What were some of the things that that revealed to you? Did you get a chance, since this was COVID, did you get a chance to actually sit in on those or did you just have to go with the cards? Once COVID happened, nobody was there. It was just because we did we did like a preview in the Midwest. Or, I don't know where the hell, in some place that they actually had theaters open. And so we just saw that bizarre shot of the audience that I just can't stand. <laughs> the infrared shot of the audience. But the screenings you were able to go to, what were what were some of the things that you sensed? They was, well, we, we just got a feeling like, you know, certain aspects weren't not landing and we had to make them land. So we worked and worked and worked and figured and figured. And then it came to a point where it felt necessary to do some shooting. And David took the time to write and we were all excited about what he wrote. It, it really elevated what we had. Did you edit this film from home? I did everything in an editing room until March 13th, 2020. Had a hiatus then until September 4th when they started shooting. And I worked remotely from September 4th to November integrating the additional photography and we did a lot of work as well it wasn't just integrated and are you working from home as a secondary location or is this your primary edit for this this project my primary edit though i this is where i did remote work for many saints of Newark. i was in this space in the film that i'm working on right now called the menu directed by mark Malad. it's for a searchlight they're shooting in savannah and they have their own you know challenges with COVID to deal with there, you know, so they don't need, you know, an editing room to throw into the mix there. So I'm working remotely here as all my assistants are working remotely as well. And that work, that's working out okay. There's so many people working remotely and here I'm on the East End, I'm in Sag Harbor, and we have one internet provider called Optimum and they, they're not the best. They're not great. So there's challenge. There's some challenges. I will be going into the city to work with Mark, the director, in November. Do you have any discussions whatsoever? Or is he shooting and that's where his head is at and then you're doing your thing? We talked at the very beginning about the piece quite a bit. And he's very, very busy right now. We communicate, but not constantly. I'm really, I'm pretty much, pretty much on my own, you know. Is there a trick to coming up with a collaborative methodology with different directors it's interesting to work with new people 
It, it just is. I'm very adaptable and I'm very collaborative in their adaptable collaborative we play you know and it becomes a process and a discussion and a creative thing <laughs> some people will say my collaborative process is very verbal other people are like no i just uh, you know if you want something i'll just cut something new and show it to you and we can have a discussion through the footage do you adapt to that or do you have a preference i like to work on something then work together and discuss and then sometimes it's sometimes it makes sense to be together and then sometimes there's some I'll, I'll just say look give me a couple hours give me this or it depends on the challenge of the particular problem it's a matter of like sometimes I need to do that by myself and sometimes it's helpful to be working together I don't have one way of working especially when I'm working with a director I usually try to really feel out what's comfortable for them it was interesting because you know on, on many saints of north I was working with both Alan Taylor and with David Chase. It was sort of like a feature film with a show. I was actually doing pretty much after Alan's 10 weeks, I was doing simultaneous cuts of what David was looking for and what Alan was looking for. And, and then they kind of came together. It was a challenging way. And interestingly, I think that they are a really interesting pairing because David's so story oriented and Alan is very visual. Like we did a lot of things together of cutting silent for rhythm. Even dialogue scenes? Yeah, yeah, even dialogue scenes. We talked a little bit about your approach earlier when you're cutting dailies. Talk to me about how much like your determination of the shot size or the shot angle and yeah huge huge you know like it's it's like when when i'm looking at this i'm looking at the different sizes plus the performance or it's something with a lot of movement or it's a, like with something with a lot of connectivity the piece that i'm working on right now there's some hugely chaotic scenes which i'm very excited about and it's just like i have to really vet it figure it and, and really play around with where to be at what time i'm on who it's it's super fun but it's like it's difficult to get that first hit on to make it all kind of play at first interestingly there's that whole process during dailies you know there's time on it i can't spend a week on a scene because there's stuff coming in so i'm to like do kind of a first touch and figuring and it's like okay i can put that sleep now and move on to this and so that i can keep up with the shooting to understand if there's anything that's problematic or anything it needs to attention or i have to tell them oh you know i could use this or that so i just keep on moving and then let's say i have a week at the end after shooting ends then i really get to stand back and look at what i have but i keep i usually keep the first cut 80 to 90 percent to script just for intention. The script is something that's been worked on and honed and figured, you know, I want to give that a chance. Then it's like, oh boy, yeah, we got to do this and got to do that. And this has to be lost. Now. This is where you want to bring the emphasis. And this is where, you know, like then, then you find the structure. Do you ever just say, hey, what if I build this really quickly and then see what it does for me and what I'm missing? Or do you say, no, I got I to gotta really feel? There's so many there's so many performances and, and differences and tons of ad lib and strong, strong ad lib, which is well marked. Like the, the writers are on the set too, and they love some of the, the ad libs that the actors are doing, and those notes are on there. So, and there are things I'm responding to as well. So I'm trying to play that, and that that affects continuity, affects everything. I would say yes, like in a simpler scene, yeah, I'll do something like that. But something this complex, it's like I just got the last dailies of that scene. It was like shot for like three days, and I just have them on picks because we we did a shifted thing. I I'm not working today or tomorrow, but I work on Tuesday, so I'm just like watch them on picks and just sort of thinking about them. 
How do you deal with ad living? Are you script syncing? Are you making notes? I'm making notes for the ad living, and and there's so much that my assistants are starting to think. Well, maybe we should start script syncing that because they're script syncing the script. I, I love script sync. I don't cut with script sync per se, but with something like this, it's super helpful because it's see the same moment in like 20 different places. You know, just it can get very confusing if you're doing it in selects. Actually, interestingly, it's also a matter of, you know, my first eight films I cut were on film and that affects my approach. I look at it like film, you know, and script sync is not like film. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. You are talking to me from New York, as you said, Sag Harbor. Is there a New York school and an L.A. school or is there a New York editor vibe and an L.A. editor vibe? I think that was more like a sort of a 60s thing. <laughs> There was the, you know, let's face it, there was what, uh, the New York thing was Dee Dee Allen and Alan Hines and Evan Lawton and of course Thelma and LA was LA, you know, but you know, there's a lot of Hollywood editors, especially from the past that I really loved. I guess you've kind of answered the question, but is there a work ethic or is there a, I don't know, I I, I do feel like there's a, (laughs) like there's still a difference, but I don't know what it is. I had a very interesting experience on David O. Russell's film, Joy. It was very odd because the two editors he was collaborating with weren't immediately available, meaning uh, Jay Cassidy and Alan Baumgarten. So he got Tom Cross to start. Then Alan and Jay became sort of available. And then I was, I had like a window of time and he reached out to me. So at one point it was all four of us and they were all lovely. (laughs) And we really enjoyed the confluence of that was very interesting, though it was a little insane. I adore David O. Russell and Flirting with Disaster is one of my personal favorites as far as I enjoy the process of editing so much and I just love the movie as well. But he likes chaos. He likes chaos. He'll he'll stir that pot. Is that chaos something that he feels adds to the creativity or that there's some creative value? I think so. I think so. For him, yes. Yes, I do. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that you feel like we've kind of missed? It was a great process. It was really fun to make the music work. We had one point where it was like, oh God, we better thin this out. <laughs> it was like, like just too much, you know, but then, then we got a good balance of going. And a lot of music is very specific and reflective, but not written in. The only thing that I'd say would be written in, I actually chose the piece of music, was Dionne Warwick, because she refers to Dionne Warwick. And I... I Love Dean Morgan. And I actually, I kind of bonded with, with David in our first meeting because I grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, and he grew up in Verona, like a couple of towns over, and it was just sort of fun. Was there a big challenge with wanting score at certain places and knowing that you needed to find some kind of scores? No, it was all, all a matter of like, oh, what, what are we going to use here? You know, let's, let's play, you know. So there was a lot of experimentation. And I have nothing against scores. I love scores. I really loved working with Michael Dana on both Capote and Moneyball. I thought his, I think Michael's a, such a talented composer. If you listen to those scores, it's like music is thought process, especially in Capote, like the writing process was believable with what he composed. That's very interesting. I'm going to have to go back and listen to those soundtracks again, thinking about that. Thank you so much for giving me the time. You have a wonderful Sunday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Chris. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. 
It's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven Curated Experience. Thanks to my guest, Chris Tellefson, ACE. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And remember that if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. 